Welcome to the latest installment of the YU Ideas podcast. My name is Stu Halpern, and I am the senior advisor to the provost here at Yeshiva University. I am here with three members of the Yeshiva University faculty to think with you about the concept of reinventing the self. Here with me today is Debbie Ackerman, a social worker with years of experience in addiction, recovery, and trauma. Debbie is a psychotherapist in private practice, assistant director of fieldwork, and an adjunct professor at Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. Additionally, Debbie is a PhD student working on her dissertation in social welfare at Wurzweiler. Debbie, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Here with me as well is the Benjamin N. Cardoza School of Law's Professor Alex Reiner. Alex teaches and conducts research in the areas of constitutional law, civil procedure, and criminal law. His articles have appeared in many prestigious law journals, and he has argued before the United States Supreme Court. He's the director of the Center for Rights and Justice, which brings together the scholarship, programs, and clinics at Cardozo, engaged in public service, client advocacy, and academic scholarship, dealing with issues of fairness, equality, access to justice, and transparency. Welcome, Alex. Thanks. It's great to be here. Lastly, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Reinhold, professor of Jewish philosophy at the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University. Daniel also teaches at Yeshiva College in Stern while directing the Yeshiva College Honors Program and the Bernard Revel Graduate School's doctoral program. He's the co-author, along with Michael Harris, of the recently released book, Nietzsche, Soloveitchik, and Contemporary Jewish Philosophy. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Steve. So first, let's start with Debbie. As we think about reinventing the self, we would love to hear your thoughts on this subject through the prism of your research into addiction. So what drew you into the field of addiction? And can you please describe for our listeners what you're writing your dissertation about? So thank you. Um, I think this is actually very timely and very apropos for what you call the season of change and reflecting into the self. A lot of people who come into the field of addiction come into it from a personal experience, uh, which usually is pretty painful. And that would have to have been me also having had a family member, uh, unbeknownst to me for years and years and years that was suffering from addiction. And like many people who are involved, the bottom was pretty was pretty hard. Um, I decided at that point to go to social work school and specialize in addiction. And I became very acutely aware of just how stigmatizing this disease is in the community. Um, Addiction is stigmatized throughout the world, even though it is what we call America's greatest social disease and the numbers are staggering. The United States spends billions of dollars in the losses due to addiction, healthcare, forensic, work productivity loss. After 85 years of 12-step movement, we still go into the rooms and we're identified only by first name and last initial. So it is the most stigmatized disease out there. One of the best quotes that I read in my PhD dissertation comes from a man named David Courtright, who wrote a book called Dark Paradise, The History of Opiate Addiction. And what he wrote is, quote, what we view about addiction very largely depends on who is addicted. And I thought that was a very powerful quote. My dissertation actually started based on my first job. When I was a master's student at Wurzweiler six months before graduation, I was hired by a company called Arms Acres. Arms Acres is an inpatient and outpatient facility, and my job was to help create an outpatient clinic in Rockland County. Everybody was very excited, and the hope was that the clinic was going to take off in huge numbers. Six months after we opened our doors, we closed. We couldn't get 10 people to come into the clinic. And then the question started to burn in my mind, why is that? Addiction was known. One of my clients overdosed at that time and committed suicide. 
but yet we could not get 10 people to commit to an outpatient drug program in Rockland County. So that is the thrust of my dissertation. The question I'm asking is why do we not have any outpatient addiction clinics in the Orthodox Jewish community? And I'm very happy to report that as of Tuesday of this week, my proposal has been accepted, and I am now on to the research phase. Congratulations. Thank you. And why do you think that addiction is so stigmatized, particularly in the Jewish community? So I've given that a lot of thought. I really have. And that comes to the religious scope of our studies. I think that in a nutshell, when you talk about Judaism, yes, we have to be good to everybody. But I think the basic tenet of Judaism is to take the physical and elevate it to the realm of the spiritual. The way we get up in the morning, we wash our hands, the way we get dressed, your right shoe, left shoe, left shoe, right shoe, if you're going pray, and then you come home and you eat and you eat in a certain order and the foods have to be done in a certain way. And every single thing that we do, everything has to do with taking the physical component and elevating it into the spiritual. It really touches on the work of Rabbi Soloveitchik and his famous lonely man of faith, Adam 1 and the Adam 2, and how you're going to bridge those two worlds. To the naked, uninformed eye, addiction is antithetical to that. Addiction is a glutton. Addiction is somebody who has no control. Addiction is somebody who's a baltaiva, who is simply a man of desire. Once you start to delve into the world of addiction, what you begin to understand is it's a very complicated disease that involves neurology, biology, environment, culture, social status, and that it's really likened to a switch in the brain. And that when the brain gets its substance or its behavior, the brain cannot stop. But that takes a lot of education, takes a lot of willingness to open a person's mind. And because of the way that we are taught since we're small, It's just a set of behaviors which are never pretty. They just don't end up as attractive behaviors. And there's many legal and monetary and infidelity and stealing consequences. And it's very easy to just cast off people with addiction as just out of control, gluttonous people. And that's where I think this concept of inventing the self on a personal level, for us all to look inside ourselves and really understand there, but for the grace of God goes anybody. We're not born with a little flag in our hands that says, please avoid wheat and sugar and chocolate and gambling and Coke and meth. You know, you can have a little wine. We're not going to know. And then as a community, for a community to look into ourselves and really start to ask the question, why aren't we learning more about this? Why aren't we doing more? Our numbers are, are swelling. Our numbers are terrible in this region. And, and you're coming to this studies and to this crucial work from a Torah perspective. How does the Torah inform how you think about, for example, the, the 12-step program to addressing addiction? 12-step movement is actually very in keeping with Torah. It's based on Old Testament work, and it's actually very in keeping with the Musa movement. The tenets of 12-step is to really just turn yourself over to a higher power. And the reason it works so beautifully is that many people who do come into addictive processes really quite frankly, have a beef with God, because childhood trauma is directly linked to addiction. Molestation, physical abuse, emotional abuse, you almost have a straight shot to becoming an addict. So people can be a little angry with God and with their life. But 12-step is spirituality. 
And once you recognize that there's a higher power, just anything above you, and that can be the chair that is sitting next to you, it can be a babbling brook, it can be anything, you turn your will over to that higher power. But also involved in the 12th step is the direct practice of making amends if you've hurt someone, of looking at yourself and making what they call a fearless moral inventory, which is really doing your own internal Musa work. Key to it is having gratitude. One of the expressions in the program is gratitude and the attitude, which basically translates into the Hebrew of hakara tatov, to be grateful. And we all know in the Torah, it says if you don't have hakara satov, if you don't have gratitude, you have no Torah. And finally, the last component of it is to do service, is to get out there, to pay it forward, and to help somebody. So when you look at the steps and you break them down, there's not one value in them that doesn't fit into Orthodox Judaism. Thank you, and thank you for the incredible work you're doing in this area. Thank you. So now let's transition from addiction to the United States prison system. Alex, can you give our listeners your thoughts, again through the prism of reinventing the self, on how rehabilitation and transformation have historically informed this country's penal practices? And I think that um, historically there have been moments when our penal system has been informed by principles of rehabilitation, um, but those moments have been fleeting. Uh, For the most part, we've taken a extremely punitive approach to uh, our penal philosophy. And so we think of people who commit crimes as deserving punishment. uh, And so we structure punishment in a way that reflects a moral judgment about the uh, conduct that they've engaged in. Um, Now, early on, uh, you know, in the 19th century, early early 19th century, when when the penitentiary system uh, was just getting started, as the name suggests, it was uh, prison was thought of as a place to um, be penitent, to think and reflect on one's uh, crimes. Uh, but even you know, in that sense, one could say that it was rehabilitative uh, in focus. Um, But it's also true that that model was extremely harsh. So I I think we should recognize from the outset that even rehabilitative models of punishment can be extremely harsh, uh, as can punitive models, obviously. So in the uh, early 19th century, for instance, the model was uh, we should keep people in isolation. Uh, We should uh, make them work in silence. Uh, We should return them to their cells in isolation to contemplate. Uh, what brought them to this place. And if uh, they do so, they will emerge uh, on the other side, better people, uh, people capable of returning uh, to the street, so to speak. Uh, That quickly uh, became a disaster. Uh, It was, in fact, recognized by the Supreme Court in 1890 in a pretty famous case at this point in Ray Medley. And the Supreme Court said this was an experiment gone awry. It left people, literally drove people insane. Uh, and so uh, even since that time, there have been moments where I think uh, our, our uh, correctional officials have uh, been motivated by real rehabilitative goals. Uh, but the last 50 years has been primarily a punitive, retributive model of, uh, of imprisonment. And so you come into prison, and the uh, first thing that obviously you need to do is you need to learn to conform. You're given a number. You're isolated from your community. You're isolated from your family. Uh, many times you're isolated from other people within prison. 
if you violate a rule, if you're addicted, let's say, um, and your addiction is so serious that you find a way to obtain drugs while you're in prison, well, the solution isn't to treat your addiction. The solution is to put you in solitary confinement. Right. So even within prison, uh, there's a punitive regime that operates uh, on the men and women who are held there. So, I, you know, the sad thing I have to report here is that I think prisons are difficult places in the United States to reinvent the self. Um, not impossible, but, but as I think I, I, I've um, s- said before, it's not impossible uh, to reinvent oneself in prison. But I, in my experience, it's usually um, in spite of prison, not because of what prison has to offer. And is it possible to reinvent this prison system in some way? Well, I think anything is possible. I've been doing this work uh, on behalf of people in prisons and jails uh, for about 20 years now uh, since I was in law school. Uh, And so I wouldn't do the work if I didn't think that there was a possibility of uh, creating a a regime um, that can be pro-social, right, that can create spaces in which people can transform themselves. Um, so I think it's possible, and I think that, um, you know, there's the reason I have optimism at times is because I think there are corrections officials, professionals, who recognize that uh, the system is failing both the people within prison and all of us outside of prison, right? Uh, those of us who have family members in prison and those of us who don't, uh, the system fails us if it doesn't take this um, uh, huge resource. It's a resource of people. It's a, there are resources, obviously, fiscal. And instead of warehousing them, instead of um, creating boredom and idleness and sometimes violence, actually take it as an opportunity uh, for people to be transformed. I'm optimistic because I think corrections officials are more and more becoming convinced that uh, what we've been doing uh, hasn't really worked. Uh, And those are the people who can speak so eloquently about um, what needs to change. I mean, part of what needs to change is we need to put less people in prison. We put a lot of people in prison in this country, a lot more than any other country, uh, for reasons that... um, uh, that sometimes probably uh, would defy our, any rational explanation. And then, of course, we have to change what happens when someone is in prison. Uh, and I think probably we also have to change the physical sort of um, plant of prisons. Uh, the, the modern prison was built um, with punitive goals in mind. They're, they're harsh places. Uh, and so, so there's, I'm op- always optimistic because I wouldn't do the work if I weren't optimistic, but I certainly recognize there are many barriers. And what would a more ideal prison system look like if you could suggest a couple of examples that you're fighting towards? Well, so I think that um, the place to start is putting fewer people in, finding other ways to address the behavior that leads people to uh, violate the law. Like uh, drug court? So a drug court is essentially an alternative sentencing regime in which we divert people uh, who would otherwise go to prison into a treatment program. And there can be very, it can be extremely rigorous, and that can be good. Um, but if a person is unable to satisfy the requirements of drug court, sometimes the resulting sentence in prison can be much harsher than had they never gone in the first place. And I think one difficulty we have is um, we put uh, we put our social sort of structures in isolation sometimes. And so we think of prison and we think of it separate from 
every other social support structure that might exist for someone when they get out of prison. And so you put someone into a, a, a drug court program and you divert them from prison, but then you have to think about, well, what other support mechanisms do they need in order to successfully navigate the requirements um, of drug court? That's correct. Yeah. So, so I think one thing we need to do is obviously think about these complex social problems uh, with all of the complexity that comes with them, right, with all the nuance that's required. Uh, so drug court's an example, and I think it is a rehabilitative uh, mode, but again, we have to recognize that sometimes it has consequences um, uh, that can be harsher than we might otherwise expect. So fewer people in prison, more programs for people outside of prison. And when someone is in prison, thinking about what does it take uh, to get that, to return that person to the street um, and to their community in a way that they can be more productive. And that's going to differ depending on the person. Um, you know, I was reading a book that was written at the turn of the um, 20th century, so around 1910, by the warden of Sing Sing Prison. Uh, and he basically talked about, and this was early on, he talked about just how much of a failure prison was and how they don't take people and treat them as individuals. They don't think about the needs that these young people, a lot of them are young people, the, the needs that these young people have, and how much of a barrier that is to actually having a successful corrections regime. Um, so I think those are some of the examples. Um, but it really, it, it's about human connection, right? So there are people who work in prisons every day. And just as prison can be dehumanizing for the people who are held there, prison can be dehumanizing for the people who work there too. And those people need to buy into whatever it is that we decide needs to change about prisons because it's about the interactions they're going to have every day with the people who are held there. And could a case be made, you know, speaking obviously to you who've literally overhauled the way New York State's solitary confinement policy is conducted, what about a case for the worst of the worst, you know, Nazis, 9-11 terrorists? Would significant time in solitary confinement be appropriate for the worst of the worst? So let me respond on a couple of levels. First, I, I want to be very careful about taking any credit personally for overhauling the way solitary confinement uh, is practiced in New York State. I was part of a very large team and, and very grateful to be part of that team. And, and, you know, the jury is still out on how successful we've been, but we certainly have seen the numbers of people in solitary decreasing and the amount of time that people spend in solitary decreasing. You know, as for the worst of the worst, um, there there will be people in prison, and it's a it's a small percentage, but there will be people in prison who are dangerous to other people, to other uh, people held in prison, to other people who work in prison. And there has to be a way to address those people so that prison is safe. Uh, now, I think we always need to talk, when we talk about solitary confinement, we need to distinguish between isolating people um, and separating people. Uh, and we can isolate people, and we can do it in a very uh, damaging way. Um, but we could also separate people, and we can separate people with perhaps inflicting less damage. So I was at a conference of uh, a lot of people around the world and around this country who work on issues relating to solitary, and I was talking with one of the corrections officials from Norway. And he was talking to me about uh, one of their uh, detainees who's the a person who 
killed a huge number of people, right, on an island, lots of them children, right? We've read about this terrible crime. Uh, and he's held in isolate. He's held it. He's separated from general population, but he's not isolated in the way that people in solitary confinement are. He has human contact. He has the opportunity to engage in human contact. I was talking to the head of the correction department in Colorado, and he was recounting how there was one person in his prison. He, he's done a lot of reform around solitary confinement, but there was one person in his prison who he was convinced could never really be safely put in general population. And he checks in with his warden at that facility and learns that, you know, he this person is out every day, walking, not being violent, having mediated, regulated, supervised contact with other people. Uh, and even that person who we would call the worst of the worst is someone who can, um, under certain conditions, uh, not be isolated in the harmful way that solitary isolates people. So, you know, there's a more general point, which is we shouldn't, we should never regulate things according to the worst case scenario. Daniel, I'm curious to hear about your new book on Jewish philosophy, which we mentioned is titled Nietzsche, Soloveitchik, and Contemporary Jewish Philosophy, and how it relates to our topic. In brief, can you tell us who Nietzsche was and who Soloveitchik was? Sure. So Nietzsche was a 19th century German philosopher. He uh, was born in 1844, died in 1900, but went insane in 1889. So his productive life ended then. He was relatively ignored in his lifetime, but quickly became an incredibly important philosopher and even cultural figure. There aren't many philosophical quotes that become bumper stickers, but, um, you know, Nietzsche was the one who said, God is dead. Uh, what does not kill me, he didn't say what does not kill me, but kind of um, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Um, and you can tell immediately just from those um, sound bites that he didn't write in the abstruse and abstract manner of most philosophers. So he wrote in a way that is kind of has great literary worth to it, um, but also contains a lot of very violent rhetoric, um, which led to all manner of different interpretations of his work, to put it mildly. Now, if you can give a philosopher Mary had a little lamb, and they'll manage to come up with completely divergent interpretations of what it means. But in, in Nietzsche's case, um, you have that to the nth degree. Um, it is a matter of, of tragic historical fact that he was used by the Nazis. His philosophy was, I say, used more abused uh, by the Nazis, who, through a perverted interpretation of it, tried to utilize his thought to support their ideology. Um, in the 1950s, Walter Kaufman wrote a book that rehabilitated Nietzsche um, and that showed conclusively that the Nazi interpretation was indeed a misinterpretation. Uh, but things then very quickly swung all the way in the other direction and people gave postmodern interpretations of Nietzsche, um, also mistaken. Um, so you can see that kind of, you know, Nietzsche became this totemic spokesperson for all manner of different philosophies. What you can certainly say about him 
that makes him a rather strange bedfellow for somebody like, well, for any rabbi, frankly, um, is he was an absolutely avowed and trenchant atheist. He gives one of the most potent critiques of religion um, that, you know, that remains relevant to this day. Mm. Um, And as for Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, uh, was a, a very significant 20th century uh, rabbi and theologian. Um, he was born in Eastern Europe and was kind of, you know, brought up and educated in that hotbed of, um, you know, Judaism pre-Holocaust uh, to a very significant rabbinic family, um, studied in that hotbed and therefore was a great Talmudic um, figure from very early on for various reasons, there's research done on this, uh, ended up doing a PhD in philosophy at the University of Berlin. Um, you know, a, a, an unusual thing for somebody from, not, not unique, but an unusual thing for somebody from that milieu to do. Um, and then the 1930s moved to America, where he was at this institution, Yeshiva University, taught thousands of students Talmud, ordained more rabbis than anybody else in history, I believe, uh, but also wrote a number of incredibly important theological and philosophical works um, that, uh, you know, remain inspirational to many people today. And how does Nietzsche's thought inform, either in comparative or contrasting levels, how we think about repentance, specifically reinventing the self, if you will, in the thought of Rabbi Soloveitchik? Right. So, so as I said, you know, Nietzsche was an atheist, critical of religion. There are divergences between him and any religious thinker that, you know, one should not ignore. However, saying that, his main critique of religion was less to do with any rational argument he had against it. He tells us in his autobiography that he's an atheist by instinct. He doesn't have an argument for atheism. He's an atheist by instinct. His main critique of religion in particular, though also of all metaphysical systems, um, is that they are, as he puts it, life-denying. Um, what is it to be life-denying? Nietzsche believed the truth was terrible. Um, you know, better that we were not born, given that we have been born, better to die soon. Um, so he quotes that as the wisdom of Silenus. Um, That's positive. So, yeah. <laughs> this podcast episode is going to be the feel-good hit of the song. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Nietzsche felt that um, religion was a way to deny that truth for the weak and insipid. Um, But the problem with religion in particular was it's a way of denying that truth that was um, psychologically damaging, that damaged human beings, that made them into submissive um, types who were following a herd-like system. Um, and importantly, with regard to repentance, the only way they could cope with suffering, the only way the weak can cope with suffering, is to have an explanation for it. And the traditional religious explanation, at least that he's familiar with and that he presents, um, and it's fair, it is a traditional religious interpretation, is, well, it's your fault, right? You're guilty. Sin. Um, comes back to something Alex said, actually, it's a, a punitive approach, all right? Well, you suffer because you deserve it. Uh, but people prefer that to meaninglessness. So uh, Nietzsche actually thinks the ascetic priests, as he put it, were geniuses. 
for understanding that the only way to allow the weak to live was by giving them an explanation of this truth, but it was one that just increased their suffering. Now, that, as I say, is a very traditional form of repentance that you find in certainly in Christianity, which is what Nietzsche was um, criticizing mainly, but also in Judaism, without question. Um, The classic work on repentance, the first real major theological monograph on repentance from the 13th century called Sharet Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance by Rabbi Jonah of, um, of, from Spain, from Girona. Um, he speaks of, for example, one should be sorrowful if one has sinned. Obviously, if one has sinned, yeah, then what does one do? One is guilty, so one has to obsess about that guilt. One has to punish themselves for that guilt and weep and cry and fast and hope that for no good reason, God will have mercy upon you. Um, And Rabbi Jonah has a view of repentance very much like that. Um, We should be sorrowful, but more than that, we should worry about the future as well. And on top of that, worry that we haven't yet been sorrowful enough. Mm. So this drives kind of your self-torture to this kind of absolute heights that are unimaginable and that Nietzsche himself speaks of as causing all kinds of psychiatric disorders. Um, Now, the interesting thing is that Rabbi Soloveitchik tries to uh, move away from that model of repentance. Um, He actually, one of the few times he quotes Nietzsche um, explicitly, um, he says that indeed, if repentance were like that, then Nietzsche and for that matter, Spinoza would have been absolutely correct Mm. to denigrate it. For Rabbi Soloveitchik, there is obviously an atonement aspect to repentance, but he speaks of that as being peripheral. The most important aspect of repentance for him is not atonement or kapara, as he puts it, but purification or tahara. And purification is, he tells us, not a transcendent or miraculous act of forgiveness by God, but a natural and psychological process where rather than looking at your past, seeing yourself as a sinner who cannot change that and therefore must throw myself at the mercy of God, which often leads to you undermining the uh, drives that led you to sin. And Rabbi Soloveitchik thinks that that is psychologically damaging. One shouldn't deny those drives. One shouldn't deny you're that person. One should sublimate them. Again, a very Nietzschean theme. Um, So he speaks instead of repentance as self-creation, that repentance is not about torturing yourself for your guilt and hoping God miraculously changes you, but is rather to be a psychological process whereby you manage to, in some sense, come to terms with what you've done such that you can affirm it, again, in a sense, as the thing that led me to being the good person I am now. So what you're supposed to do is utilize all those drives rather than deny them. He notably never mentions um, worrying about reward and punishment and the world to come in your repentance, which again is a major theme in all traditional forms of repentance. And this all comes to the fact that Soloveitchik basically agrees with Nietzsche, that the other forms of religion are damaging and life-denying. And what we need is a life-affirming form of religion that doesn't fall back 
on those old tropes, because as Nietzsche was correct to say, those are deeply damaging. So to paraphrase Nietzsche on some level, instead of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, it's by overcoming sin, you emerge stronger in the thought of Rabbi Soloveitch. Uh, yes, to put it in, in, in religious terms, in Soloveitchik's terms, yes, by overcoming sin, but overcoming sin in a way that doesn't try to, so to speak, excise it from your history. Mm-hmm. And what about comparing their thought that you just walked us through uh, to the thought of another seminal 20th century Jewish thinker, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook? Who was he and what was the essence of his conceptualization of repentance? Right, so Rav Cook and Rav Abraham Isaac Cook, not to be confused with his son, uh, Svi Uda Cook, uh, also actually came out of that same uh, Eastern European world a little earlier than the Rabbi Soloveitchik um, and ended up very famously going to Israel and becoming a, a major religious Zionist thinker. Um, Rav Cook comes from a far more mystical place than Rabbi Soloveitchik. So he actually, there's, there's a place where he... he quite literally writes, the world is without sin. There is no sin because everything is is God. Um, The problem is we don't realize that. So we have to reconfigure the way we think of things in order to understand that. And that for him is is repentance. Um, So that reconfiguration, again, that you can't deny something. It was divine. It was all part of this divine nature. So you, again, don't deny it. You reconfigure it. And that's very much like Soloveitchik, but much more importantly for Rav Cook, who in a way is much more extreme. Um, He writes that regret weakens our drives for goodness. And therefore, for him, the highest form of repentance is a form of repentance that he associates with what he calls the, the Keter Klali, the universal crown, which again is referencing something from mystical literature. Um, but he thinks the highest forms of repentance, and these are vouchsafed only to the few. Obviously, it would be all too easy for somebody to deceive themselves and be disingenuous and say, you know, well, if God's not going to punish me, so yeah, I'm fine. I, I've repented and I'm good. Right? You have to obviously read this seriously and understand that they're talking about people taking this seriously as a psychological process. But Rav Cook believes that the highest form of repentance does not involve regret at all. So he's trying to eliminate regret entirely from the process of repentance, which, as I say, is very radical, and there are only those who gain this, you know, mystical, these mystical heights who can do it. Mm-hmm. But that is a, a trope in his thought. The reason he writes that we have after the Day of Atonement and this period of deep introspection in Judaism, we have kind of the festival of Sukkot, which is kind of Zman Simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing. And he says that's as a corrective, because we will be in a weakened state, given all this introspection, and we need just pure, sheer, unalloyed joy to, so to speak, fix us. So again, you have this very strong theme that religion in its highest sense ought to be life-affirming and joyous and, for, you know, more than that, creative, etc., um, rather than some form of life-denying and depressive world for the weak. And they, both of them appreciate and understand that their philosophy will not suit everybody. Many people, um, Nietzsche once wrote, the rules of the herd should rule in the herd but not reach out beyond it. Um, he was nothing if not an elitist. Um, but I think Soloveitchik and, 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 and Ruff Cook would both um, agree with that up to a point, right? This philosophy maybe doesn't suit everybody. Maybe there are certain people who need that old form of repentance. 
but to show that there is a way of understanding religion that does not need to follow that life-denying route, I think it's very important um, and is a, a major contribution that some of these modern thinkers have made. You know, it's interesting. I think about um, what Daniel said in the context of prison and, and what, it, what, it, what resonates most for me is I think about parole. And so in New York State, there are still some people who have life at the back end of their sentence, right? Is that, that is, every two years, they'll come up for parole, and they could be released on parole, but they could serve uh, for the rest of their life. And I think for those people, it's a very difficult process because the parole board um, spends a lot of time talking to them about what got them to prison and wants to be convinced that they have made, maybe this is the old form of repentance, right? That that they have recognized what a terrible thing it was and somehow changed as a person. Um, and it's that's a challenging road to navigate because you can't change what you did. That's the one thing that is never going to change. What you did will never change. People's perception of it might change. Their perception of you might change. But the facts of what you did will not change. Um, and sometimes the parole board will look at someone and say, well, yeah, we recognize you've been in prison and you've had a stellar record. You've never gotten a disciplinary ticket. You've done all your programming. You've done your alcohol and substance abuse treatment programming. You've done your um, anger replacement therapy programming. You've taken all advantage of everything we've had to offer. But gosh, what you did to get here was so terrible. We're not sure we want to let you go. And it's a, it, you can imagine for the person who's been in prison, right, who's, who's said, well, I've done everything. I've done everything you've asked. I can't do any more, right? There's no more that I can do. And I can't change what got me here. And so basically what you're telling me is you're never going to say that I am going to see the street, right? Um, and so it, you know, a sentence that was meant, it was, it's meant to sort of be consistent with our rehabilitative ideals, right? This, right. It, 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 it imagines that somebody can transform. But the one thing that is never right. going to change is... So, is I mean, that's very interesting because, um, I mean, firstly, I, I, I just say, I think the, the idea you stated at the beginning was maybe actually Soloveitchik's version of repentance, which would be the kind of, no, you know, yes, I did do that, but I have changed, despite the fact I did that and I can... You can't change the past, but like you say, perceptions can change a bit. And, and Soloveitchik's view of this is, is actually based on, on precisely that. He talks about changing the past. Now, he doesn't literally mean, you know, changing the past, but he does mean changing the narrative and the way it fits into the whole. Um, what's, what's very interesting, though, um, in the Jewish tradition, and Soloveitchik doesn't speak about this in detail when he's um, speaking about repentance, but there is this idea that there are certain sins um, for which full repentance cannot be done in this lifetime, and it awaits death. Um, now, you know, we don't need to take all that literally in any way, but I think it maybe speaks to this idea that, rightly or wrongly, that there are certain things that people have done that are just so heinous that we can't bring ourselves to 
um, to understand somebody coming away from that and genuinely, yeah. you know, now being changed. So there is there is an opening for that idea that there are limits to this notion of reinvention. Um, and as I say, I don't. It's difficult whether that's right or whether that's wrong, but it does have space for exactly that problem. And I think there's also the the, the principle we have of while Yom Kippur might enable you to have forgiveness from sins you've committed against God when it comes to sins against your fellow uh, human being, that's really between you and that human being. So I think that's an element as well. You know, obviously people sinning, people committing crimes uh, have affected other people as well. I want to jump in. That was fascinating. This is really incredible. I was really listening to the way this is kind of being woven together and interrelates into everything in terms of the forensic system and, and my world of addiction and then the philosophical world. The first thing was that when you were talking about Nietzsche and his, um, I didn't realize he was the one yes, that said yeah. what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> so, <laughs> Nietzsche would be turning yeah. in his grave. Right. But. I don't think he's getting any rights for that I don't song. Know. Listen, <laughs> he spurned a movement. So that, that was really interesting to note. It's really interesting to me. You have to just keep going down into that rabbit hole of hating yourself and punishing yourself and then there's no way to get out. I cannot tell you how many people that I treat that have addictive processes and addicts, they hate themselves. They are so full of shame and guilt. They absolutely loathe themselves and they do not understand why they're doing what they're doing and all they, it's, it's, they're compelled, there's a compulsion. They weren't even sure if they should put addiction in its own category in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that came out or if they should lump it with OCD because it's really in its obsessive thought that leads to compulsion of behavior, no matter what the consequences are. It doesn't make any rational sense. Zero. So I've had addicts come to me and they punish themselves. They deny themselves food. They deny themselves water. My very religious addicts, they plunge themselves into freezing cold mikvahs every morning, uh, ritual baths. They sleep on the floor. They, they try anything they can to stop this behavior. Well, we know that one of the, the four triggers for addiction, it's called HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You're hungry and tired, you're gonna physically spur on your addiction. You're lonely and angry, you can't let go of a resentment and you're feeling alone in this world. That's gonna cause you to do a maladaptive behavior. So it's the actual antithesis of what you're talking about of this chuva process where you hate yourself. What the rooms teach you or what treatment teaches you is you're not a bad person at all. You have a bad disease. That disease causes you to act in a really bad way. But you need to learn to love yourself in a very fun, and this takes years. You need to learn to love yourself in a very fundamental way. Then you can love other human beings. How can you love another human being if you cannot love yourself? And so the number one treatment for addiction, actually, this is a licensing question, is to put somebody in the 12-step rooms. Take them out of that isolation. Take them out of that place of everybody hates me. I'm, I'm an absolute aberrant creature in this world. No, go into a room, talk to people, serve coffee, emote, let people be with you. You can walk into a 12-step meeting any day of any year and say, hi, my name is whatever, I have one hour sober, and the room will erupt into cheers. Yay, you're so good. You can do that the next day and the next day. You can do that for 17 years in a row. Nobody's ever going to pull you inside and say, you've been doing this every day for 17 years. You want to maybe change something. Recognizing that the change has to come from within yourself as you build up your ego and you start to feel better about yourself. The second thing that I thought was really interesting is a lot of addiction starts in adolescence where adolescents are still forming that moral code. 
They're still forming their sense of self. We can look at the works of Erickson. We can look at all the developmental psychologists. And like I said, you don't know what's going to ever trigger your brain. And so they, they start and they start to get the shame and get the guilt and get the horrible feelings. And then that just spurns it. One of the things that I think would be really important is to start to educate our youth into exactly what is addiction. Not to, what would that marijuana joint do into your brain? What's that alcohol going to do for you? What is peer pressure? What's compelling you to do it? Which would be a really important piece of programming. And I just wanted to also preface by saying when you go into the rooms and you do get to that place of higher power, some of the sayings in the room, which maybe we're familiar with or not, are let go and let God. Time takes time. And one of my favorites, progress, not perfection, or put down the bat and pick up the feather. Meaning if you're going to beat yourself up, put the baseball bat down, pick up a feather and be gentle with yourself. Because truthfully, there but for the grace of God goes anybody. Anybody. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Anyone. When I was in social work school at Wurzweiler, they actually take you to Northern State Prison in Newark, which kind of horrified me. I live in Passaic. I'm like, there's a federal prison in Newark? Really? I didn't know that. And you walk in and actually had in mind to maybe apply for a job there. I really needed a job. And um, very much to what our expert in prisons, I walked out with the biggest migraine of my life. I could not imagine being in that environment eight hours a day, five days a week. It was horrifying. One of the most powerful moments that they do is they have you sit with groups of prisoners and you get to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. Well, I did the prison trip two years in a row. First thing that struck me is I got to meet the same prisoner. I was like, oh my gosh, he's still here. No, of course he's still here. He's there for life. I was a year closer to graduation. I was a year closer to fulfilling my goals. He's in the same place, wearing the same uniform. Nothing changed for him. And I sat down and I started to talk to him. And, and to be perfectly honest, because as a therapist, you have to have a lot of what you're feeling and your sense of self. I was terrified. I knew he had murdered somebody. I was absolutely terrified to sit and talk to him. Baby-faced guy, red hair. And I said, so do you want to tell me what happened? He's like, sure. He actually murdered a guy that came on to his then-girlfriend. And he murdered him with his bare hands, which horrified me. Because I felt like a gun or a bullet is like one step removed from actually feeling the life ebb and flow from someone's body. And then he told me when he was five years old, his stepfather burnt their house down with him in it. And so he ran into the forest behind their house, and he was on his own from the time he was five years old. Really like an animal in the woods. No education, no money, nobody went to look for him. And here he is. And I point blank asked him, I said, what do you do? He knew he's never getting out. There was not even a, a thought of a parole border. This man had actually turned to Buddhism, and he practiced what he just called every breath of every minute. He said all he focuses on is one minute at a time, because otherwise he said he's not going to make it. It's an incredibly powerful trip to take people on. Um, <clears throat> each time I left, I just left sobbing at, at just the... Yeah. The tragedy of, of so many systems that we could look into ourselves and self-introspect. It was, it was very powerful. Yeah. When I, the first time I went to a prison was I was in law school. And 
I had a sort of a reaction similar to yours in the sense that um, I was meeting with a client, <clears throat> so it's different kind of relationship. But similarly, I was I was there to try and help him, um, and I spent the first forty five minutes of the meeting just fighting the urge to flee. I felt so constrained and so terrified. I, I wasn't ter- panicked. I wasn't. I wasn't terrified by him so much. I, it was uh, the closing in around me. Right. So I think one thing, and and one of the things that appealed to me about doing work in prisons is it is a rich environment. It is challenging. It is painful. It is terrifying. It's traumatizing for lots of people who work in and around prisons and who. Are, are held in prisons, but it's also rich, and there's a daily life. Right? There are yeah. people in prison who are living a daily life, and sometimes I think we forget that they don't just go to prison and um, they're there and then they come back. There's a life there, and right. that life has a rhythm, and that life has to have a meaning. And it has actually. a community. And it has a community, yeah. exactly. And yeah. and um, so that's one thing that what you just said resonated with me. The other thing you said. And this is something one of my professors taught me. Um, he does death penalty work down in Alabama. And his what he would always say is, you know, there aren't bad people. There are people who do bad things. Correct. Right. Um, and that's something that's been really important for me as I do that work. And the s- same thing that you said about addiction, right? It's not, I'm not a bad person. I have a bad disease. Um, and I think that's a, you know, it's a hard concept, obviously, because sometimes you are face-to-face with somebody who's done a terrible thing, something that... I I could never imagine doing, even though I can relate to the possibility of being in prison. Like there are certain things I could never imagine doing, and so sometimes it's very challenging to take that attitude. But I do think it's an important uh, stance. Um, and the other thing you said early on uh, about addiction and punishment, where you said you know who is addicted matters, is so true yeah, within prison. Statement. Whatever yeah. I mean, it is you know. T- we can't talk about prison without talking about race, and we can't talk about our, the way we think about drugs and addiction without talking about race. And um, the the influx of concern and empathy around the opiate crisis, it, it, it is not coincidental that many of the people who are suffering from opiate addiction are white. It's like right, right. white mass uh, crisis. <laughs> yeah. and, so, um, and so, you know, at least for me and my work, I can never... Um, take race out of the picture of the history of our criminal justice system and how it operates every day. Um, but I think that that point about the the daily life of people right in prison that a lot of us don't see unless we are connected in some way, um, never never lose sight of it. I never lose sight of it, at least I try not it to. It is important. And the, when we're talking about the drug court and they said, well, if you can't fulfill the requirements, but that to me is kind of like a failing of understanding what addiction is. Addiction is mental cancer. And everybody knows that it's just a process of recovery, which hopefully you have longer and longer and longer periods of, and relapse, which you hope to avoid. But if you look at it in that way, and you you don't look at it as a moralizing, we cannot talk about addiction without moralizing. We still are at that moral point of addiction. And the point's well taken. The majority of costs that the United States government spends on addiction is forensic. Putting people in prison, the court costs, keeping them in prison, the family court, if we put that money into treatment, if we actually flipped that and took the funds that we're spending to keep people in prison, the world would be a different place. If we actually paid social workers, <laughs> <and> <laughs> mental health workers, what they're worth, 
and you got really top quality people to man programs, we would have a very different look to this. It's a disease. And people just weep with shame and relief when they find out, I'm not the devil incarnate. I'm, I'm not this sub, I have a disease. And they'll tell you, my, my disease is coming. They, they learn to recognize the signs and then to say, I need more treatment, I need more help. Right. It's interesting. I mean, one commonality here, there was something Alex said that I, I scribbled down where, where you said that prison is a very difficult place to reinvent oneself. Um, and part of the work you're doing, therefore, is to make it a place where maybe you can, right? Um, and in a sense, I think that was Ralph Soloveitchik's problem. Religion is a very difficult place to reinvent yourself, <laughs> right? And right. he was trying to give us a religion where you can. You can right. be a creative human being who kind of who uh, expresses all these the the positive values of modernity uh, rather than the humble submissive type that is usually associated with religion and similarly in the world of of, of therapy it's you know how, how do you get them out of that narrative down the rabbit hole so that they actually can begin to to move away from that so I it's this reinvention really you know that really is a kind of a binding theme and I, just one thing i would add it's interesting nietzsche um what there's a whole a um, lot of literature now on Nietzsche for a while, actually, um, in the world of, of therapy and kind of, um, you know, from psychology all the way to Freud wrote about Nietzsche. Um, no person who's ever lived has known themselves better. Um, so he, his tentacles reach out all over. <laughs> and if we could conclude just with a, uh, with a charge or with a, a way to think about reinventing the self to to our listeners, to our students, to our community members, based on your incredible work in these areas, what parting words would you have to say to our listeners? I'll go first. Um, this is where my other side comes out. I'm going to quote the ever so famous Beatles. All you need is love. You need love of yourself. And the love of yourself is going to translate into the love of other human beings. And there's actually another famous quote that I can't remember who said it, but um, she was a reporter for NPR, and she said, when you're faced with very difficult, controversial issues, you want to apply light, not heat, because light is energy and understanding, and heat is fire and fury and anger and judgment and condemnation. And that just doesn't work. So the respect and the love that you have for yourself and that you can give over will lead you to a greater understanding. It's not a condemnation of bad behavior, but it's a way of just understanding where it emanates from and what can we do then to make it better. So that a lot of that resonates with me, and I think what um, both Daniel and Deb just said over the last few minutes made me think that part of the challenge to reinventing oneself is that um, there are labels that are placed on us by other people, by our government, by society, and you know, people who are addicted, there's a label placed on them. People who violate the law and are put in prison, there's a label placed on them when they're in prison and when they leave prison, right? That is a barrier to reinvention. And so I think part of, part of a way towards success uh, is for all of us to try and start, stop thinking about people in those labeling ways uh, and to recognize, you know, we, we, we all have failings or we all have frailties. Um, and, uh, and if we were all judged, and this is something Brian Stevenson said, right, if we were all judged by the worst thing we ever did in our lives, if that's what walked around covering our, um, our heads in judgment, none of us would um, Leave the house. survive <laughs> very long. 
uh, under that scrutiny. Uh, so I think that's a way, I hope, a way forward. Amen. Yeah, um, I think I'll also go with the song lyric, um, though kind of separately I'll talk to Deb afterwards about treatment for my particular obsession such that <laughs> I own all of Ringo Starr's solo albums. Oh, really? Um, yeah, can we meet? <laughs> that's not terrible. That's a good um, one. <laughs> so uh, a female singer-songwriter called Amy Mann, um, wrote a great song in which there is the line about us condemning the future to death so that it can match the past. Um, and I think that very often, particularly um, people within a religious environment, feel that that's what they have to do. And to create theologies, philosophies that show you that you can be religious and take the past and tradition very seriously um, without condemning the future to death um, is a very important way forward. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us Thank and you for very the much. incredible work that you do. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. It's great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yeshiva University's YU Ideas podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Thank you to Michael Betancourt and the Office of Marketing and Communications for always having an open ear and wonderful feedback. Mm-hmm.